Tonight, beloved listeners, we're going to celebrate the senses in all their glory. The five whoppers, sight, sound, touch and smell and taste, but also the myriad others that science suggests exist. Dr Ashley Ward is our guide. He's a professor of animal behaviour at the University of Sydney. You might recall we uh, spoke to Ashley last year. We had social intercourse about his book, The Social Lives of Animals. And now he's back to talk about his newy, sensational, a new story of our senses. Good on you, Ashley. And it's great to have you as a living, breathing creature in the studio. Aristotle took out the original copyright on the senses, didn't he? He numbered them at five. But you suggest that's a gross underestimate. Uh, well, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be here, Philip, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, I think Aristotle sometimes gets a bad rap because he put together this enormous thesis of fascinating information and it sometimes seems that the only thing that people remember from that, that it was this idea that he suggested that there are five senses. That's a gross oversimplification, of course, um, and I think Aristotle probably knew that. There are many other senses in our repertoire that go beyond the big five. Well, you, you suggest there are as many as 53, and we'll get stuck into some of those a, a little later. But let's look at, in more depth at the five we're familiar with. And, of course, we tend to regard sight as the ultimate, uh, the ultimate sense. Yeah, we, we think of it absolutely as the arbiter of truth. You know, we, we believe things when we see them. And, yeah, it, 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 it really is probably the most important of our senses. But that shouldn't demean the other senses in a way, you know. It's, it's an important sense, but it only exists as such in collaboration with our many other senses. I'm aware of uh, various illusions that I've experienced with my eyes, often related to trauma. But uh, one of the emotions is a, a meant to affect sight. I'm thinking of the emotion of love. There's an old adage that the, the Danube River looks blue. Absolutely, yeah. And that's something I refer to in the book because it was a, a beautiful story that my grandma used to tell. They, my, my, my grandparents only left... Uh, the UK once in their entire lives and that was under extreme pressure from my gran who really wanted to go and see Vienna. So they fetched up in Vienna with my grandfather who was <laughs> not the most romantic of people and at one point they rounded a building and came face to face with the Danube and my gran was so excited and she said look Jim the Danube they say if you're in love it looks blue and my granddad turned to her and said looks bloody brown to me. <laughs> <laughs> but colours are, of course, an illusion. They are. It's such a strange thing. And, and, and really, you get a lot of kickback from people when you tell them this because, you know, we experience the world with a degree of certainty. And yet, let's say red. Now, we see red and we believe that we see red, but actually there's nothing intrinsic about red light. It's just light that has a wavelength of about 620 nanometers. It's our brains that make it look red. So re the red is in our heads, as are all the other colours. I suddenly remember doing a programme on the interesting fact that bulls can't see red. <laughs> you know, they're agitated by the, the, you know, the guy waving the cloth at them, but not by the colour. OK, so colours don't exist outside our brains. How does the coloured vision compare, our coloured vision, 
compare with different animals, excluding the bull. <laughs> Actually, the bull is quite a good example. I mean, it's it's amusing that we you know we see the world as we see it, and we assume that the bull sees it in the same way. But actually, many many creatures are like the bull, in the sense that um, most mammals have only two color receptors to our three, and that means that they have an experience of the color world in a broadly similar way to those people who have red green color blindness. The reason for that is that mammals first appeared on the Earth at the same time as the dinosaurs. And at that time, the dinosaurs were the real rulers of the Earth, and the mammals existed very much at the margins, and they were often nocturnal creatures. Now, being a nocturnal creature is fine, but it places a limit on the value of color. Consequently, mammals evolved without a real, any real value to color, and, and that legacy has been passed down to um, modern mammals. My frenemy Richard Dawkins reminds us that we're descended from fish and that is significant, isn't it? Because fish have very good eyes and quite similar to ours. Actually, yes, yeah, some colour vision amongst fish is actually better than ours, especially in shallow, shallow water living um, fish species. But this bottleneck that occurred when mammals first appeared has sort of left most mammal species with a relatively depauperate kind of colour vision sense. We're lucky as primates that some mutation in our genes, um, in, our, in our distant ancestor, distant primate ancestor, left us with three colour vision cones and, and gives us this wonderful rainbow of, of experience that we have in the colour world. My guest is Ashley Ward. Birds, butterflies, bees, they see ultraviolet light. Yeah, that's incredible. And we can start to gain some idea of, of, of what they're seeing by using computer vision to augment um, the sights that we see in the environment. But some of the things that we can see are really quite extraordinary. I mean, some of your listeners may be familiar with the idea that when you look at a flower, for instance, under UV uh, conditions, they have patterns on that we're in normal life completely unaware of. Um, or some of the birds that we see around us, with, especially some of those with really quite um, unassuming plumage to our eyes, when you look at them under one of these filters, they are a riot of colour. I mean, I'm thinking in the northern hemisphere of starlings, but also over here we could think of minor birds, for instance. They look so different to themselves than we, than, than we see them. I have the, a telepathic sense, uh, Ashley, and I'm getting telepathic signals from the audience, from the, <laughs> from the gladdies and the potties, and they're asking me to ask you about the mantis shrimp. Oh, my goodness. This is one of the most wonderful animals I've seen in all of my time in Australia. It's, we, we call it a shrimp, and when we talk about shrimps, we often think about small things, but a mantis shrimp certainly isn't a small animal, at least not as small as most shrimps. Um, the ones that I've seen have been about the size of a, of, a, of, a, of a fairly chunky banana, and they roam around on the reef, um, and they are phenomenal to look at. They look a bit like... Um, some kind of biological rendering of a Chinese dragon. They're beautiful, beautiful animals. And sensorily, they are, at least in terms of vision, should I say, they are almost unparalleled in their sight, um, perhaps actually unparalleled, un unparalleled. They can see polarised light, which is, is one thing which is completely obscure to us. They can see um, a huge range, potentially, of colours, although we don't know exactly what they see. We have three colour cones, as I alluded to earlier. These things may have anything between 12 or 18 colour cones. I used to be involved with the Centre for the Mind at uh, Sydney University, and its founder, 
discovered or studied the eye of the fly and he used that to help with the development of fibre optics. Now, I mention this because you make the point that uh, this little mantis shrimp offers a lot to science. Exactly, yeah. So the mantis shrimp is really the, the poster child for visual research nowadays. There are some wonderful work going on here in Australia. And really, it's, it's given us the opportunity that sort of inspired leaps forward in design. It's really quite an amazing animal. And you also think there may be relevance to uh, medical diagnostic tools? Well, yeah, so here's the thing. I mean, mantis shrimps can see polarised light. A few other animals can too, but as far as we know, the mantis shrimp is the only animal that can see both linear and circular polarised light. Where that comes into medical diagnostics is that skin cancer, a, a, you know, a major problem here in Australia, can be detected really quite easily using circular polarised light. Um, what looks to us as, you know, with normal human vision as, as, as being um, unremarkable, when you shine circular polarised light on it, these uh, early skin cancers really stand out like a beacon. I often marvel at circling wedge-tailed eagles up at the farm. And I discovered some years ago that their eyes are really interesting. They have effectively a zoom lens in the iris so they can zoom down with their sight and spot prey on the ground. Yeah, what we're talking about here, I guess, is acuity. So for a normal human, we have... Normal human vision is sometimes described as 20-20 vision. Um, sometimes people use that slightly wrongly to mean people with really excellent vision. It's just normal human vision. It gives us a benchmark against which we can compare ourselves to other animals. So it means, really, in essence, we can see from a distance of 20 feet what we should be able to see from a distance of 20 feet. Cats, by comparison, let's say, are something like 420 so what we can see from 20 feet, the cat has to be stood at a distance of four feet to see the same thing. Now, going to the other end of the spectrum, like you say with the raptors, they are phenomenally um, gifted visual creatures. They can see things at a distance that we can barely imagine. That um, There are various measures given for, for raptors, but they may have sort of 80 or 120 20 vision. So they can see things at a distance of, say, 120 feet that we can see at 20. And lions, for example, see a slit so that they can look at a panorama for game on the horizon. That's one of the beautiful things about studying um, the senses in the context of an animal's ecology. So animals have obviously evolved their senses to be able to not just cope but to thrive in their particular environment and, and that's exactly what we're talking about here with lions. Talking to, um, to Ashley Ward, author of Sensational, a new story of our senses, let's now switch to sound and I can hear a threatening sound approaching. Relax, Ashley, you're not in immediate danger. But uh, that, of course, was the Jaws theme. Tell me that sound is more than just vibrations. Well, at a physical level, sound is just vibrations, but it's freighted with a lot more meaning in our minds, of course. So all of our senses give us an insight into a different sort of physical channel of information, and sound is critical to us. I I imagine... Um, millions of years ago when we were prey animals uh it's in the middle of the night there's no light by which to see the predator where 
potentially downwind of a predator. We can't smell it. We're effectively defenseless unless we have some other means of detecting that approaching predator, and sound gives us that. But sound is more than just vibrations through the air or you can actually snippets. feel sound you can you? actually feel sound yeah i mean anybody who stood near a speaker at, at, at a live event will know exactly what i mean it vibrates through your bodies and um, but you know sound we, we played the the, the the jaws clip there and that of course is one of the most memorable pieces of, of film information but one of the interesting things is that Film producers that have given previews of their films without a musical soundtrack, especially the ones that are thrillers and are, you know, meant to make us kind of jumpy or nervous, if they're played without their soundtrack, the effect is so much reduced. We know that uh, our new shiny bright king, Charles III, <laughs> I think, likes to chat to his plants, but you tell me that there's some evidence that plants might be listening. Well, yeah, so here's the thing. I mean, he attracted an awful lot of um, uh, comical comments uh, about that particular incident. And, and Only I think that's pesky <laughs> I think that's perfectly reasonable. I think it's very strange to talk to plants. But, you know, if it works for you, if it busts your stress, then, then go for it. Actually, studies have been done to look at whether, it, you know, talking to plants, singing to plants has any effect. And the scientific studies of that suggest absolutely not. However, plants are in some ways listening, and this is the strangest thing. So well, the, tell me about that experiment at the University of WA. Yeah, well, this is the one where they planted um, seedlings in these special kinds of pots where, as the roots go down, they're forced to go either to the left or to the right. So we can see a simple decision that the plants are making. And what these clever researchers did was to lay a little pipe through which there was running water on one side. And even though there was no difference in temperature in the soil on either side, on either left or right, no difference in the dampness of the soil on the left or the right, just the sound that was made by the gurgling water caused the plants to grow their roots towards it. And, you know, this is... I, I found out so much right in this book, but that was one of the most fascinating things. I never expected that. So rather than ears, they have leaves and flowers that are sensitive to vibrations. That seems to be it. And yet, you know, exactly as you say, there is no sensory organ, there's no centralised structure like a brain that enables them to sort of work out what's going on, and yet they still are able to respond to these vibrations. And you make the point that they can make sounds. For example, when they're stressed or damaged, I hate to think of the mass scream that occurs <laughs> when you're lawn mowing. Happily, we don't have to listen to it, but this, these... Uh, the noises that are emitted by plants when they're stressed by lack of water or when they're, you know, cut or damaged, they produce a sound which is approximately at the same level of, as our conversation, but in a register, in the in uh, ultrasound, which we can't hear. But if we could hear ultrasound, <laughs> we would be able to hear the plants. I want you to explain about ultrasound shortly, but first, tell me how our sense of hearing should start by looking at, once again, fish. So I guess the human ear is a marvel of really botched design in a sense. We have this strange ear which has essentially three zones. There's the outer ear, which is obviously the bit that sticks out into the world, the middle ear and the inner ear. Now the strange thing is that sound has to go from the air medium to the liquid medium. And anybody you know who's been underwater at the, you know, in the sea or in a swimming pool will know that you can hear almost nothing that's going on 
above water uh, and vice versa. It's you know, difficult to hear what's going on underwater when you're above water. And yet somehow the sound has to get between these two mediums. Normally it simply bounces off the interface. And that's where three little bones come in, the, the malleus, the incus and the stapes, tiny little bones in your middle ear that transmit vibrations. And where fish come in is that these uh, little bones were essentially once part of their um, gills uh, and they've migrated over evolutionary time to sit where they now sit in modern humans in their middle ear. And their purpose is to convey sounds from our eardrum, uh, which is the kind of end point of our outer ear through the middle ear and into our inner ear. Infrasonic versus ultrasonic, if you please. So humans, at least when we're first born, have a hearing range that goes from about 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. A hertz is simply one cycle per second in terms of those waves of sound. 20 hertz is really, really deep bass. 20 kilohertz is a screaming high-pitched sound. That's the sonic range, 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz roughly speaking. Sounds below that we call infrasound and sounds above 20 kilohertz we call ultrasound. And this explains why we can't hear the song of a blue whale, although it's supposed to be some, well, many times louder than a jet engine. Actually, yeah, I had once this fantastic experience when I was uh, working on humpback whales, um, jumped in the ocean uh, near this male who was singing and I was a little trepidatious before we, get, we, we actually got in the water with it because the sound that these beautiful, gigantic animals produce is, you know, many times lar larger than, than would be required to actually hurt us, but much of it occurs in, in the infrasonic range, which means that we don't hear it. We can feel it vibrating through our bodies, but we don't actually hear it. Let's now move on to Pong. Let us discuss <laughs> smell. It's the most uh, complex and underrated of our senses, apparently. Yeah, there was almost a campaign by early scientists to marginalise our sense of smell. You know, it, with the Age of Enlightenment came this premium that was placed on directly observing and directly measuring things. Now, we are very good at measuring things that we see and things that we hear. But smell, it's vague, it's ineffable, it's very difficult to get our hands on. Coupled to that was this idea that just about all diseases um, were spread by smells. You know, we think about malaria, the old Italian uh, word meaning bad air. It was thought that smells really were just a source of disease, an animalistic throwback to our, you know, our, our ancestry. And, and really, if we wanted to be modern humans, we should be relying on sight and sound, but not on smell. But as you point out, it was probably the first sense to develop yeah, if we if we look even now at bacteria, I mean, they're chemosensing all the time. They're moving along chemical gradients. They're picking up what we would think of perhaps now as, as little bits of smell and, and moving towards them or away from them. Um, but back in the primordial soup, yeah, the chemosense was the, was, is thought to be the first sense to have evolved, and that's what bequeathed us our noses. I remember doing a program on the Stasi who actually kept files of smells of dissidents in eastern eastern Germany. I raise this because uh, you argue that we each have a unique olfactory fingerprint. Yeah, this is one of the most fascinating things, I, I think. So we think of our sense of smell as being relatively uh, minimal compared to some of our other senses. And yet it has this vast number of different receptor types. We have uh, about 400 olfactory uh, receptor genes, which means ultimately, that we have 400 different olfactory receptors. And they're not all in the schnozzle. 
No, they're, they're sprinkled throughout the body. That's the thing. I mean, there are taste receptors, for instance, um, that are sprinkled throughout our respiratory system where they don't provide any sense of taste but do intercept the uh, signals of incoming pathogens, perhaps. They're in our bloodstream. And strangely enough, in men, they can be located in the testes. And this gave a very, very strange a kind of uh, little quirky thing that developed a few years ago when this finding was announced. Um, when, when young men realised that, that they had uh, taste receptors in their testicles, they would respond by dipping their testicles into things that tasted of things. Uh, some, of, some of them even claim to be able to taste things, which is nonsense. They're not wired to the brain in the same way. I often watch a sheep at the farm use finding their lambs via smell. And this is no simple thing. You've got, a, you know, hundreds of sheep and often hundreds of lambs. But human mothers are also pretty good at identifying the smell of their babies. Absolutely. Human mothers are extraordinarily good at this. Um, again, it's another one of those things, now we're revising just how important, how good our sense of smell is. This is, is one thing which, which sometimes comes up. Mothers are excellent at finding their babies, and babies are excellent at, at recognising their mothers, both purely um, through the sense of smell. I've just been alerted by one of my highly sensitive producers to the fact that taking the pill can stop a woman from smelling. Yeah, so here's, here's the thing. So the, the sense of smell does play a role in all aspects of our lives. And one of the important aspects it plays in is how we smell potential partners. Now, one of the things that it's often suggested to do is to govern how we pick a mate in terms of their major histocompatibility complex, MHC, it's hard to say. What we're after in a partner is somebody with a somewhat different MHC to us, potentially to give our offspring a broad swathe of different um, immunocompetence because that's what the MHC is involved in. But the MHC also affects the way we smell. So when somebody smells really attractive, it could be that we're smelling somebody with a different MHC, which means not only potentially we already have immunocompetent children, but it also likely means we're not related to them. Now, the interesting thing that you brought up there is that that works really well until... Uh, the contraceptive pill hoves into view because what happens then is that women's preference changes from potentially smelling partners or preferring partners with a different MHC. They start to prefer the smell of heterosexual women, at least, start to smell, prefer the smell of men with a similar MHC. So that's a, a massive shift in their preferences. And potentially that might be because, you know, the pill mimics pregnancy. You know, when we invited you in here, <laughs> we had no idea this was going to be an R-rated program. I'm so okay, sorry. <laughs> let's now do a segue to, uh, to taste. And just as you've swum with the whales, I believe at some stage you ate fermented shark. What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> That's a very fair point, actually. I, I do make a, a point of um, trying unusual things when I travel. Um, in this particular case, it's a, it's a delicacy called hakal that you get in um, Iceland. And I think at some point in the Middle Ages, Iceland was faced with all kinds of uh, crises with regards to food. And one of their solutions to this was to catch one of the gigantic Greenland sharks that swim around Iceland and to use that for food. The problem with Icelandic sharks is that their blood, like many other sharks, stores urea and urea can be toxic. So to address this what they do is they bury the shark 
until bacteria have snipped up all the urea and turned it into the delightful tasting ammonia, which at least has the benefit of being less toxic. And then they dig it up and they serve it. And that was the harkal that I tasted. And let me tell you, um, to save anybody else the trouble, and apologies to any Icelanders listening, it's awful. <laughs> well, you said it tasted like vulcanised litter tray. <laughs> Okay, Heinz had 57 varieties. We're going through some of the 53 varieties of sensory perception. We haven't got time to look at extrasensory perception in in this exchange, but uh, how does our sense of taste, our taste buds, if you like, compare to other mammals? Actually, we're somewhere in the middle of the pack. It's a strange thing, but it turns out, as a rule, that carnivores have very few taste buds. So your cat or your dog... You might give them food which you think is relatively boring, but to them, with relatively few taste buds, that doesn't matter so much to them. And yet, animals like, say, cows or, or your sheep or, or horses, herbivores, their mouths are packed with different taste receptors and taste buds. It's estimated perhaps that cows, for instance, have about 20,000 taste buds. Compare that to two to 4,000 that a cat has. We sit roughly in the middle. We're omnivores. Uh, we taste... As in a very similar way to the way that t- pigs can taste. And the reason for that is that we think of our sense of our senses generally, but our sense of taste in particular, as something which is there to give us pleasure. Actually, it's an early warning system. Of course, of course. Now, we played the Jaws theme before. We need a theme now to introduce the roundworm. We can't find one, but uh, <laughs> I'd like you to discuss the roundworm and touch. Yeah, so this is... I, I, you know, one of the most important things in recent years in terms of our senses it was during the pandemic, a loss of touch. We were isolated. We could no longer touch one another. And sometimes we think perhaps that isn't so important. And yet research shows that it's important throughout the animal kingdom, even to the point of little roundworm called C. elegans. So if you raise C. elegans on its own, it really fails to develop in ways that a happy um, and socialised C. <laughs> elegans would do. And these extraordinary researchers who were in, in, investigating this tried to remedy the situation by just very gently tapping these little lonely worms from time to time, just to simulate the presence of other worms in their environment. And do you know what? The strange thing is, that little bit of tapping made them all happy. I have a sense of time and uh, it's running out for us. So let's go back to the smorgasbord of other senses we could have beyond the big five. Can you rattle through some of those for me? Yeah, the way we, when we get to a number like 53, that is really a categorising thing. It's it's not particularly interesting, but there are some senses that we might have and some senses that we definitely do have. A sense that we might have is magnetoception. We know lots of animals can find their way around by being in some way able to perceive the the polarity of the earth. Well, migratory birds come to mind. Exactly, exactly right. Um, but there was this one fascinating experiment that was done um, back in the 70s, I believe, in Manchester, where... Um, a professor loaded his students, blindfolded onto coaches from the university, drove them in a circuitous route, ended up in the middle of the moors and asked them to point uh, where home was. And amazingly enough, when they slipped their blindfolds off, they pointed in, a, in, in the correct direction on average, which is an impressive feat, except for the ones who were asked to wear a magnet as well as a blindfold on their heads. They couldn't do it. 
I joked about extrasensory perception, but uh, some animals seem to have it in the sense that they can sense danger coming, like perhaps a, a volcanic eruption or a tsunami. Yeah, it, this is really just tapping into animals' ability to pick up um, cl- cues from the environment that we're not sensitive to. And actually, it turns out that uh, a colleague of mine who's looking at um, uh, tracking animals around the Earth has demonstrated that actually goats on Mount Vesuvius are more effective at, at alerting us uh, through scientific means, um, basically through collars that they wear, than the best scientific equipment, equipment is able to do. It's an extraordinary thing. Okay. What are some of the ways in which sensors could be harnessed in new ways in the future? Well, one possible thing is the development of an artificial nose. Um, that sounds comical, but actually a lot of the diseases that afflict us affect our bodily biochemistry. If we could develop electronic noses that detect these minute changes in our biochemistry, we could have an excellent early warning system for things like cancer, for Parkinson's disease, for Alzheimer's. The potential is there, um, and we're at the point of harnessing it, I believe. Look, thanks for taking part in the first Late Night Live with smell vision <laughs> It's uh, been an interesting experiment. Ashley Ward, Professor of Animal Behaviour at the University of Sydney, and his newie is Sensational, a new story of our senses published by Alan and Unwin. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.